Hey everyone, Paul here. This is the finale. Yes, the last episode in the Problem of Evil series, a series that began all the way back in October of 2019. So we've been going on for, what would that be? Boy, at least close to a year and a half, if not a year and a half. And it has been an absolute blast to go through this journey together. I have tried my best to serve as an impartial tour guide for the past well, the previous 16 episodes up until the, the one just before this, and these final two conclusion episodes, I'm actually sharing with you my conclusions. I've gone through this journey with an open mind, just as I've invited you to as well, wanted to explore all of the various, not all of them, obviously, but many of the most significant Christian thinkers of the past 2000 years and have tried to remain open to the insights that they may afford when it comes to our deepest questions about God's will, evil, suffering, and all of these perplexing questions that I think we all wrestle with. As I've said in I think every single introduction in this series, the best way to consume this series is to actually go from start to finish and work your way through. I think the energy investment the time investment, it's worth it. It's worth it to, to try to sort through some of these deeply profound, perplexing, challenging questions that we have that aren't just intellectual in nature. They actually deeply affect us at an existential level because it's the way that we answer these questions that's going to inform how we respond to the world around us, what we think about God, how we'll pray what, what we will do when we encounter an instance of, of suffering or pain or something we believe to be evil. I concluded last episode by presenting to you three categories for interpreting experiences of pain, displeasure, whether we personally experience them or we see them happening in the world, to help us rightly differentiate between an instance of pain or suffering that I believe might be actually part of a rightly ordered creation, though it may be painful or uncomfortable, something that might be part of the cruciform nature of creation, or whether something is the result of a force of non-order, so that would be something different than evil, which I've named as disorder, Something non-ordered, which might be, hey, you know what? If you go out into space beyond the bounds of our atmosphere, uh, you might find that space is inhospitable. Space is not evil. It is just, to our human experience, an experience of non-order. So that's not evil. It's not sinister. It's something that could be transformed into a good experience, into an ordered experience, or it could be that chaos, that non-order could be transformed into a malevolent experience of suffering where we could cause harm to others or harm to ourselves in ways which we would say are actually disordered, not part of the right ordering of creation. And of course, I've already mentioned here that third category, the third category being, is this, the question we ask ourselves is, is this force, is this experience something from a, a force of malevolent disorder which is seeking to steal kill, and destroy. The challenge that we experience in trying to rightly interpret our instances and events of suffering, the challenge we face is in naming and properly responding to those events. Not all events are 
filled with unambiguous meaning. And so this is very difficult work. We concluded by thinking about the passage in 1 Corinthians 13 verses 9 through 12 from the Apostle Paul that says, For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. So the question I want to pose to us today and try to help lead you through as I've gone through it in my own journey is a process of maturation. How do we move from thinking and perceiving everything like a child, maybe even perceiving certain instances of pain or discomfort as evil and malevolent when maybe they're not? And simultaneously, how do we actually rightly see instances of disordered evil as that, that they are disordered and in need of reordering, healing, and renewal? I think there are some guides from our Christian theological and philosophical past that can help us sort through some of those instances that we experience and help us figure out a map to navigate our experiences of suffering. But even with that, I know there will still be lingering questions about the problem of evil. So by the very end of today's episode, I will try to borrow a story from a great storyteller that I think I think helps piece it all together. I think helps build a cohesive vision for what God is doing in the world and the role that evil, suffering play in that grand story. I find it intellectually and existentially fulfilling. I'll invite you to see it as such, and then I'll look forward to hearing your responses. If you stay tuned to the end of today's episode, I will explain some of the ways that you can respond with your objections, questions. We're going to do a bonus Q&A episode, one that's specifically on the remaining lingering questions you have about the problem of evil. So stay tuned. At the end of today's episode, I'll explain some of the ways that we can connect and you can present those questions to me. Deep Talks, Exploring Theology and Meaning Making is a podcast dedicated to exploring the intersection of theology with all of our efforts to find and make meaning in the world. We're exploring the intersection of theology and philosophy, theology and science, theology and culture, theology and the arts, and so much more. And we're trying to do it in a way that's maybe different from what we are commonly encountering in our social media world, a world filled with outrage. We're trying to have nuanced, non-combative dialogue about these questions that are, are so deeply important to all of us. Today's episode is made possible by the generous support of people on Patreon. Thank you all for your support. Again, stay tuned at the end of this episode to find out more about how to get involved in the Deep Talks Patreon community, how you can support this podcast, and how you can pose your questions, your opinions, give me your feedback. Find out more about all of this at the end of today's lecture. The Apostle Paul said we see in a mirror dimly. 
And because we see in a mirror dimly, even as we earnestly search the scriptures, it's important that we take time to compare what we see in that mirror with what others before us have claimed to see in that mirror. Knowing that we all see in part, we might be able to see more of the whole as we comb through those great works of the past, just as I have attempted to do with all of you throughout this Problem of Evil series. In my own efforts to properly gain a greater God's eye view, to help name, to help respond properly to instances of suffering, I've done the best I can to mine the collective wisdom of Christian voices from the past and present. We've seen throughout this series that obviously not everyone is in agreement with with what they see or what they have claimed to see in that dim mirror's reflection, and, and that's okay. But we all have to make a decision on how what they see in that mirror and sometimes those disparate pictures compares to what we believe we are seeing. So let's review some of these key Christian voices of the past and see how they may have interpreted suffering-inducing events and how they may have designated which of the three categories I've brought up. Is this right-ordered, non-ordered, or disordered? Which of those categories they see particular events or particular actions properly belonging to? And let's start from the very beginning now of Christian history, where we see that the earliest Christians continued to see the real presence of malevolent disorder at work in the world and named particular instances as examples of satanic malevolent disorder. For example, Ignatius, in the first and early second century, he saw instances of individual sin, disruption of Christian community, heresy, and blasphemy as satanic attempts to sow disorder and dysfunction in the world. Yet, Ignatius also thought that even in that, Christ's power was above and beyond the wiles of the devil, and that Christians can resist against those forces of disorder. So, those are some helpful insights. Ignatius certainly thought that sin, disruption of Christian community, heresy, blasphemy, those are some real clear examples of disorder, malevolence, satanic working in the world. Polycarp, the disciple of John who lived from roughly 88 to 156 AD, he saw false teaching and the rejection of the cross as the malevolent disorder of Satan. But Polycarp Polycarp also saw his own martyrdom as sharing in that cup of Christ that we've talked about. His famous last words before his martyrdom was, quote, I bless you, Father, for judging me worthy of this hour, so that in the company of the martyrs I may share the cup of Christ, end quote. For Polycarp, all things in heaven and earth were subject to Christ, and even his own participation in cruciform suffering wasn't just an act of malevolent disorder from the deceived Roman powers, but Polycarp interpreted that as being part of the Father's right ordering that would produce good fruit in the world. It was the grain of wheat falling to the earth. In the second century, 
Justin Martyr saw satanic malevolent disorder at work in things like heretical deceptions, like the heretical deceptions of the Gnostics and the Marcionites. For Justin, the possibility for disorder to exist comes just as a contingent aspect of God's allowing for moral agents to exercise a degree of free will. It's just part of the arena. If God's designed the arena of creation to allow for the possibility of free will, then disorder is a contingent aspect of God's right ordering of creation. Yet Justin is clear that no free agent, no spiritual or human agent of any kind can ultimately usurp the will and purposes of God. And this is very much in keeping with that conclusion, that first conclusion that we saw in the book of Job, right? Derived, that I've derived from the book of Job. There are no forces, whether they are malevolent or whether they are non-ordered like Leviathan, that chaos chaos, uh, monster of the ancient Near East. There are no forces that ultimately usurp the will and purposes of God to Justin. God's delay in the final cessation of all disorder, which is certainly a question we all have, like, why don't you just set things right right now, God? He does that, according to Justin, to allow more human agents to experience his goodness and forgiveness. The possibility that more humans who have yet to be born can eventually experience his goodness one day, that outweighs the side effects of allowing for the continued presence of malevolent disorder. Irenaeus, who lived from about 135 to 202, He believed that it was in God's original good intention and right ordering of creation for humanity to go through a process of maturation that includes pain and suffering. That was part of God's intention and design in this current age. For Irenaeus, it's this process of moving from being like children into an increasing state of perfection. That, that's all part of God's good plan. There's, a, there's an arc to the story, a character arc to the story that God has designed for all of creation and for human agents in particular to participate in. All of humanity gets to go through a process, actually, you know, even all of creation. But for Irenaeus, he's specifically focused on human moral agents going through this maturation process, which includes instances of pain and suffering at times. This doesn't discount, though, simultaneously. So Irenaeus isn't saying that though this is part of God's right ordering, God is not, uh, Irenaeus is not a monistic theodicy supporter. He's not saying that we should accept all instances of pain and suffering as being right ordered. Because Irenaeus does not discount the forces of malevolent disorder, specifically Satan, that are at work in creation. And Irenaeus believes we have to resist them. But because humanity consistently fails at resisting that temptation, we experience, as part of the the working of malevolent forces of disorder, Satan and his demons, We as humans experience consistent temptation towards disorder. 
But even in that, Irenaeus sees there being hope, the good news hope of Jesus and his incarnation. Jesus comes as as true God and true man, and through a process that Irenaeus famously called recapitulation, Christ undoes the sins of—he undoes the sins of humanity and and the disorder of Satan and reverses the process, setting the world right through his suffering, which ultimately leads to the victorious resurrection and the final setting right of all things. So we can see really early on in these first two to three centuries that Christians, they didn't veer in either two ditches. And there are these two ditches, right? We have a ditch on the one side of accepting everything that we experience as being rightly ordered, as ultimately being rightly ordered and and receiving it all as a cup that we must drink. But on the other side, the other ditch is that we see everything as being flawed and broken and disordered. And and in that ditch, we're going to talk about these two ditches here. But in that ditch, there are some major, major problems. The earliest church fathers are in neither one of these ditches. There's a very clear and consistent witness in those first two to three centuries about a framework that we've called, I've called very early on, cosmic conflict or maybe cosmic dualism as opposed to a monistic theodicy on one side of the ditch and a radical ontological dualism on the other side. And we're going to talk more about this. This kind of cosmic dualism, I, I believe this is the kind of dualism of sorts. It's at the cosmic level, not at the ontological level. So what I mean by cosmic is it's happening in the arena of creation, right? The arena of creation is good, but even within that arena, there are agents who use their will for, and will draw more on some of the resources that give us this language in a moment, but they can use their agency to be in participation with the good, or they can use that agency in a way that moves away from the good, and in doing so creates disorder. So the good, the true, and the beautiful, this is the rightly ordered source of all things. This is God. So participation in that brings about the right ordering and functional purpose of the arena of creation, using your agency to participate, to not participate in the good, to move away from the good, move away from the source of life, to move away from functionality brings about dysfunction and disorder. The early church fathers, they're situated in these first two, three centuries, somewhere between that monistic theodicy that sees all instances of suffering, even the events that some might find to be the most egregious instances of evil as flowing from the unfettered will of God. They situated not in that ditch, and they're not in the ditch of ontological dualism, like the, the, the ontological dualism of the Gnostics and the Manichaeans who saw creation as being filled with so much disorder that it it had to be on the ontological level, the product of either some flawed or sinister demiurge. 
the early church fathers are not in either one of those camps. They're situated between there, acknowledging evil in the arena, but simultaneously acknowledging that there's a good God who's made a good arena for agents to live and to participate in. Now, are the church fathers a a univocal voice on all issues of doctrine and theology? No, there's definitely disagreement. Uh, among church fathers on particular things. Are they inerrant? No, they're not. But I would present that I, th- I believe these earliest church fathers, as they are closest to the original cultural context of the scriptures, I, I, I do believe there's a degree in which these church fathers, the ones who gave us, you know, and preserved the canon of scripture and established the bounds of orthodoxy, they are also the ones who I think are, are rightly getting that we need to stay away from these two theodicy ditches. And I want to be really clear here. Now, again, I'm moving out of my impartial tour guide mode that I've been doing throughout this series to really share with you my opinions. I think there are major, major problems if we fall into one of the two ditches, the extremes, the monistic theodicy or the the hyper-ontological dualism. There are some major, major problems if we come to a theodicy that lands there. Now, do really, really intelligent people still land in those places or do they even sometimes get, to me, uh, a little too close to those ditches? Yes. Uh, You know, and can I be friends with them? Yes. You know, can I disagree with them? Yes, because I think there are existential pitfalls in each of these that it's important for you, from my perspective here, that you see the dangers and the pitfalls of believing one of these two extreme theodicies. And, And if you're not situated somewhere in the middle You know, closer to the middle of these two poles, I think there's real problems. Monistic theodicies are forced to logically interpret all events as ultimately being right-ordered. And ontological dualists are forced to place a disproportionate and ultimately unbiblical amount of weight on creation being disordered. And there are major existential pitfalls to each of these poles, if we think of them on a sort of spectrum, on a map. The existential pitfalls of each are that on one hand, if you overinterpret all instances of suffering as being right-ordered, you'll miss out on the opportunity to fulfill part of your human vocation as an image-bearer. Part of that human vocation as an image-bearer is your calling to bring right ordering to non-order and disorder. Not only that, but if you overinterpret all instances of suffering as being right ordered, you will continue to allow instances of injustice and dysfunction to be continually perpetuated especially among the poor or oppressed who may be disproportionately affected as victims of these cycles of disorder. I think there are some historic examples I would point to as theologians who are very, very bright, very, very intelligent. I think they're, they're trying to be faithful to the scriptures, but I would see them as 
edging a little bit too close to a monistic theodicy for my comfort level. And I think in among these theologians of the past, I would say there is inclinations among them to over-interpret instances of suffering as being right-ordered that I don't think we would see in the ministry of Jesus, Jesus declaring them being right-ordered. I don't think the earliest church fathers would have seen all of these instances as being right-ordered. So here's some people that I would say I have disagreement with on this point because I see them as veering a little bit too close to this monistic theodicy. Some of these would be Augustine, and I want to differentiate. I really believe there's a shift here that we've talked about in Augustine's theology, and we really see this shift post the Pelagian controversy. I think in that controversy, Augustine began to espouse to an overly predestinarian view of God's will, and um, I, th- I think there are some some dangerous ramifications to an overemphasis on a predestinarian view of God's will. This edges too close to the monistic theodicies that that lead us to just ex- over-accepting all instances of suffering as being right-ordered. So late Augustine is one, and I love Augustine on so many things. We're going to talk about the things that Augustine said, I believe, are true. I also would see the, uh, the theodicy of Martin Luther and John Calvin as edging a little bit too close to this, this pole, this ditch of monistic theodicies. Now, some might also see the metaphysics of Thomas Aquinas as inevitably leading to monism, but this is a point of debate among Thomists, and it's a point of debate in which I tend to see Aquinas somewhere between a monistic theodicy and what we could say is a moderate cosmic dualism, because Aquinas vigorously defended what we could call as a, a concept of libertarian free will. That wasn't a term that Aquinas used, but, but Aquinas really worked hard to make clear that he believed in human moral responsibility. He believed that moral agents did truly possess authentic potentiality to bring about outcomes. So I would not see Aquinas as, as being in this camp. I think he's somewhere between a monistic theodicy and a moderate cosmic dualism. There's also some other historical figures or movements that I see as being hyper-monistic in their theodicy, and they are, are definitely not like Augustine, Luther, and Aquinas kind of edging, but I think they have moved into this hyper-monistic theodicy, and that would be the Jansenists, the Deists, uh, Friedrich Schleiermacher, Hegel, and a more, more contemporary uh, example would be John Piper. And there's so many things. I've been blessed by John Piper yeah, throughout the course of my life. But in this regard, I think Piper's theodicy is too monistic, and I, th- I think there's a problem with it. Now, there is certainly a real danger if one moves into the opposite theodical ditch, if that's even a word, to the opposite theodicy ditch. If you veer too far in the other direction into ontological dualism, you might find yourself in a constant state of anxiety about the amount of perceived evil in the world. And you might find yourself feeling crippled by an inability to 
really have any logical basis for assurance that God can and will triumph over all of the evil. On top of all that, if the state of the material universe is so corrupt and fallen, if we start with the corruption and the fallenness of this world, of the universe, you lose the basis for even trusting reason or your experiences at all. And this calls into question, if you're in this hyper-ontological, you edge too closely to this ontological dualism, you, you lose any foundational basis for, for trusting in the validity of the great disciplines of general revelation like math or science. So it should come as no surprise that some of the theological traditions that I would say teeter on this ontological dualism, they also produce some of the strongest conspiracy cultures in the U.S. Now, I love, there's so many things I love about my charismatic background, but so much of my charismatic background was not just a you know, I think a healthy cosmic dualism. There is some of that there. There certainly is. You know what? I think at its best, much of the charismatic and Pentecostal theological emphasis on there being a, a an, an actual, um, there's actual forces of good and evil in the world. You know, that's something that's not always emphasized in other, maybe kind of down the center of the aisle evangelical traditions, they might not have that, especially those that really come from that more Lutheran or Reformed background. Now, Luther certainly had thoughts about the devil, and, and, and so, did, so did Calvin, but um, you're not going to see in those sorts of contexts people talking about things like spiritual warfare as much. And so I was deeply immersed in a culture that emphasized and talked about spiritual warfare. Danger is if you put, not just, you know, acknowledge the validity, validity of, of those concepts, but if you place an overemphasis on them and you veer too closely to a sort of ontological dualism that would see the world all around you as fundamentally corrupted and fallen, it's no surprise that in the past few years it has been those particular environments that have been the most susceptible to insane conspiracy culture in the U.S. After all, if we think through this, if disorder rivals God's right ordering of creation to this extent, then it, then it is internally consistent in that interpretive framework to be concerned that a COVID vaccine might be the mark of the beast. It's not absurd, right? It's not absurd within that framework. Now, I just said, I think, you know, if you veer into ontological dualism, what you're going to have is an entirely and completely absurd universe at all, one that you have no trust in whatsoever. But if you don't think about that, right, <laughs> if you don't pick up on that and you still, you know, you, th you think everything is, a you know, there's some evil force behind everything in the world, if you overemphasize disorder, it will be very easy for you to overly name instances and experiences of the world as being disordered when they might actually be good 
and rightly ordered. And it's no coincidence that the Gnostic, on, there's these Gnostic, onto, ontologically Gnostic mythologies. Remember, the Gnostics were the, the hyper-dualists that saw the material world, the, the, the world of flesh and blood and bone and sinew, the, the world we inhabit as being fundamentally the production of a flawed demiurge or even an evil demiurge. And you take a Gnostic ontological mythology like that, they actually see all of reality as a conspiracy. This is something, you know, my, my new friend John Verveke has pointed out. It's, and this is such a great observation. Verveke points out that the Nazis may have been the ultimate manifestation of a Gnostic mythological narrative in a human civilization. Think about it. Hitler actually saw the whole world as being in a struggle, a, dis- a struggle that he needed to defeat and overcome. Mein Kampf, my struggle. The Jews and their God, they were like, you know, to the Nazis, they, these are like the evil gatekeepers to be defeated and destroyed. And every instance of human sickness or Every instance of disability to the Nazis was something to be eradicated from the earth. And they did that through horrific things like eugenics and the the state-sponsored mating program of the the Lebensborn. The Lebensborn were like who the Nazis saw as in, in their culture as being the genetically ideal humans that would be called to eventually fill the entire earth. This is what happens if you get into a hyper-dualist theodicy. You end up seeing all of the world as evil, as a conspiracy, and it's, it's only through some sort of constant struggle or somehow some miraculous piercing through that, that veil, through some secret knowledge, that you can conquer and overcome the evil world. So what does that look like if it's made manifest in a church culture? Hmm. What does that look like if it's made manifest in a human civilization? It's an f- anxiety-ridden existence, and it's a real problem. This is the very real danger of theodicies that move from a moderate cosmic dualism into hyperdualism, and then actually get held at that culture-wide level, whether it's in your family, in your church, in a state, a civilization. Because if all of reality is a struggle between good and evil, and you divide the world into teams of light and dark, your disposition towards the other outside of your cultural tribe is going to be one of suspicion, fear, and hate. Sound familiar? (laughs) We've really devolved into this. Now, I want to be clear. I I don't think because I'm not. I don't think everyone outside of the way I see the world are are evil. I I want to be clear. Not all of the people who have held to a more ontologically dualist theodicy turns out to be Nazis. They're not bad people. For example, I think in some ways that my recent conversation partners, who I, I really appreciate, I, I, th- I think there are, as far as I know, and I, I, I don't know them 
um, as deep friends or anything like that. But Greg Boyd, Thomas J. Ord, I think they're honestly trying to do the best that they can to make sense of evil and suffering in the world. And they haven't found all of class, the classical responses to be helpful. We, we had a really great dialogue together about that. I do think in some ways that Greg Boyd, Thomas J. Ord, their theodicies, to me, they veer a little bit too closely to ontological dualism. And, and, and Thomas, Thomas especially, Thomas J. Ord's especially, probably even more so than Boyd. But yet, in both of them, they're committed to nonviolence and they really dislike Nazis. So I, I'm not saying as I bring up critiques or as I put anybody uh, from my perspective into um, the, the ditch of ontological dualism, I'm, in bringing these up, I'm not calling anybody a Nazi. I don't want to commit a slippery slope fallacy. I'm not trying to build a straw man. I'm just pointing out that the, the fullest manifestation of a ontologically dualist theodicy might be a Nazi civilization. <laughs> so that, that does bring up cause for concern. It's like, all right, what if we followed this through to its most logical extent? And, and I think maybe that would be, if I have a follow-up you know, conversation where I'm not the impartial tour guide with Greg and Tom, that those would be some of the other questions I'd ask them. Historically, there are, the, there are some theologians that we've explored, some of them that we haven't talked about, that I think, I think they veer too closely to this ontological dualism, or even some of them that I'm, I want, I'm going to list now have been explicitly hyper-dualist in their theodicy. And these have included, obviously, the Manichaeans, the Gnostics, clearly hyper-dualist, right? Uh, Marcion. I think Origen veered too closely to hyperdualism. I think some of the Pietist movements did as well. Some expressions of liberation theology, process theism, and open theism. The cosmic dualism of the New Testament and early church fathers takes seriously the forces of malevolent disorder, but also acknowledges that this struggle has been allowed in the arena of creation by the intentional will of God. Some of these church fathers took the cosmic struggle of the New Testament so seriously that they came up with cosmological backstories for things like the fall of Satan, which are pretty unfounded in the biblical revelation. We just don't have a backstory. Some of these theories, such as Tertullian's proposal in the third century that Satan was once the wisest of the angels but became jealous by humanity's special role in relationship with God, and then he led a rebellion against God. I mean, it's certainly an interesting speculation, and it's one that many people still believe today, and some of them believe that it's explicitly stated in the Bible, even though it isn't. Um, but I have to confess, I, I don't have any reason to explicitly believe them, any of these cosmological backstories. They might be interesting, might be compelling. We'll certainly talk about a cosmological, a mythological cosmological <laughs> backstory at the end of this, that I think can be a helpful symbolic way of interacting with the problem of evil. But I have no reason to believe that, you know, any of Tertullian's proposals, you know, we get later in history, we see Milton's Paradise Lost. I don't have any reason to believe that that's what literally happened. I also think we see in the early church fathers a propensity to see 
instances as instances of suffering as either one, category one or category three, right? They they have a propensity to either see instances of suffering as either opportunities to participate in Christ's suffering as part of the cruciform intentions of God's right ordering of creation in this age, or to see the instances of suffering as part of the satanic disorder that flows from the misuse of the will. These ancient thinkers, um, you know, what we'd be, to them, what we'd be apt to label as the natural world was just far more influenced by the will of agentic forces of good and evil than what we are more inclined to believe in the post-Newtonian world of, in the West. You know, the post-Newtonian world where you have processes and, and laws of physics and uh, you don't necessarily see uh, an agent behind the force that keeps the planets in motion. So you see a process that's not necessarily something the early church fathers would have done. And I, I do think the, the critique that I have of the early church fathers in those first three centuries, even though I lean towards this more moderate cosmic dualism, is that they don't have enough room for this mediating category between right order and disorder. They don't have room for a mindless, non-ordered force. It just wasn't necessarily in their philosophical worldviews. There's hints of it, you know, there's hints of it, but, but in general, this was a, you know, a much more enchanted time to use some of the Charles Taylor language in which there's, there's much more of a belief in spiritual agentic forces behind instances of what we might call natural phenomenon. But I have reason to believe, not just because of post-Newtonian science, but I actually have reason to believe of that from the scriptures, like with the symbolic affirmation of forces of Leviathan-like non-order, combined with that light of general revelation of the sciences that has just given us so many accurate insights into the workings of the phenomenal, ph phenomenal or material world, there's reason enough for me to believe that there are many events in the world that are happening that are not directly the product of an, any direct agentic causality other than God's agentic will, as an uh, agentic meaning acting as an agent in the arena, or even in the case, right, of God, of, of God acting outside of the arena to even build and create the arena. I, I, I think there's reason to believe that there are many many events happening in the world which uh, we can just call them as being non-ordered. They are ordered in the sense that God has designated them as non-ordered. That might seem like a paradox, but I, 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 I think it's the case. They are non-ordered in the sense that they are not agentic. They don't possess any sort of, you know, um, cognitive will. While the Newtonian language of viewing the universe as a machine, it, it certainly has its drawbacks, it has also helped us understand causal patterns and develop appropriate responses in ways that have vastly improved the quality of life on this planet. Understanding that there are, I'm using air quotes here, mindless processes in the machinery of our universe that are not con conscious agents with a will for good or evil 
is necessary to me. It's a necessary perspective to help us properly interpret the events of the world around us. Not only that, but I think understanding the second category, that there is a category we could say is just non-ordered, it helps us to actually see God's vocational call of the human species in Genesis 1, where we see God's call on humanity to act in God's likeness as an invitation to bring right ordering to the non-moral life of the natural world. And anyone who's worked to bring some functional good ordering out of an interaction with plant life, animal life, or the non-agentic forces of nature, they know that this sort of work is not always filled with immediate gratification or pleasure, right? You know, as I've been working through this conclusion, you know, we've seen some changes this week, but as I've been writing this conclu- these conclusion episodes, it, it's been consistently sub-zero weather here in, Min- in Minnesota. Every time I step outside, I experience a degree of pain and suffering. Now, tempted as I am some days to see this kind of Minnesota weather as a satanic attack, it just isn't. It's simply weather. And we have to have room in our theodicy and even just our, our, our meaning-making system to see there being room for this kind of category. It's cold. It's bitter outside. That's not a satanic attack. It's not disorder. You know, and it might, uh, you might go, well, is it rightly ordered? Well, that depends on how we respond in our interpretive framework to an instance of non-order. So what is the right interpretive framework to employ when a brutal Minnesota winter storm comes my way and just drowns us in, you know, two feet of snow? Do I try to cast out a demon or do I bundle up, grab a sled and transform a potential instance of non-ordered suffering into a right ordered moment of joy sledding with my kids? All of the homes we live in, they exist as a transformation of the natural world, the, the wood, the brick, the the concrete used to construct it, it's all there to shield us not only from forces of disorder like a burglar who may come try to steal from us, but they're also there primarily, I'd say, from, to shield us from the sometimes chaotic, the, the non-ordered forces in creation which could cause us harm. A winter storm isn't evil. It's a mindless process built into the functionality of the whole system. But being called in the likeness of God, as we are called as his image bearers, called to be in the likeness of God, humans can see this process, this instance of perhaps non-order. Now it's part of the whole order ultimately, But this particular instance of non-order, we can see it as an opportunity to transform the chaos into order. We build levees and dams to control raging waters. We extract materials out of fossils that power our cars and keep us warm in the cold. We carve paths in the wilderness so that people hike and they can go out and more easily enjoy the natural beauty of creation. 
in every encounter with non-order, there is the potentiality for it to become right, ordered, or disordered. Some of the great Christian thinkers of the 3rd through 5th century can really help us to understand this. Three of the most significant Christian theologians of the 3rd through 5th century, Origen, Gregory of Nyssa, and Augustine, were all profoundly influenced by the Middle Platonic and Neoplatonic philosophy of their day. Adapting some of the language of Plato and Plotinus, each of these three men found a way to communicate many of the truths of the biblical revelation into their cultural, philosophical context. Now, I have sharp disagreements with each of them on some point or another, but even in those disagreements, I find that their understanding of what evil is is so profound. I, it's so profoundly helpful in shaping my own theodicy. What Origen, Gregory of Nyssa, and Augustine all agree upon is that evil is not a metaphysical necessity on par with the good. God is the absolute source of the good, the true, and the beautiful, and is the ground of all being. God is pure actuality, but contingent moral beings contain possibility. We contain potentiality. Using our potentiality to move away from the good, which is God, is evil. Because to move away from the good is to head into increasing states of disorder, the end of which would be non-being itself. The use of will and potentiality to move towards the good in ever-increasing union is the good and proper use of our will. So, evil then is the dysfunction and disorder that emerges from the misused will. In the arena of God's contingent creation, there are varying degrees of rational moral agents with wills that possess varying degrees of freedom. For example, Satan and the demonic. They're real. Spiritual moral agents. Origen, um, Greg of Nyssa, uh, Augustine, they all affirm this. I affirm this. I think there are real spiritual moral agents. They're, they're not merely psychological constructs. There are real spiritual moral agents. I don't understand the reality of the, the, spiritual, the spiritual domain, but I affirm this. What they are are spiritual moral agents who have misused their will. Now, the thing that separates them from human moral agents is the scope of the potential uses of their will that God has given them may include affecting creation in ways that are, are much different than the ways human agents impact the world. So can a demonic force bring about an instance of sickness or disease? Yeah, I mean, Jesus certainly thought so. <laughs> I have to agree with it. I'm in agreement with you know, Origen, Gregory of Nyssa, and Augustine on this, they are real spiritual moral agents, and the, the scope of the use of their will includes affecting creation in ways that are just, they're different than human moral agents. Um, Thomas J. Ward asked Greg Boyd in our conversation a great question about, well, how is it that that happens? And that's, that's a really good question. Uh, he asked about what is the, the, the medium of, of which the, these spiritual forces can bring about something like an, in, like a, manifestation of a disease in someone. And I think the mechanism is through, the best thing I could describe is consciousness. 
but you know, I'm going to have to hold off on giving my explanations for why I believe that. Um, I have to save that for another time. There's a cliffhanger for you. All I do, all I want to say is I just want to affirm that. I think that's a historic Christian belief within a more cosmic, moderate cosmic dualist framework that within the arena of creation, there are different degrees of potentiality that spiritual agents can employ, and they're just different in kind and scope than the way human agents can employ the potentiality. Now, what caused the fall of those spiritual agents? You know, each of these guys maybe has a slightly different theory, right? Uh, I think Gregory of Nyssa claimed, and I think this is helpful in some sense, you know, he says, I don't know. I don't know the cosmological backstory that led to the fall of these spiritual agents. I, you know, I appreciate his honesty, but his speculation, and I think it's a, an, a helpful speculation. I think there's a degree of theological, um, a degree of theological truth to the speculation. He speculates that Satan was just the first agent in creation to, quote, close his eyes to the good, end quote. So in those prior episodes we did on Gregory Ness and Augustine, I used the analogy of loading up your plate at an all-you-can-eat buffet. God made the buffet good. He made the food good. Evil isn't picking the wrong food on the buffet. It's not like, you know what, we've got, uh, we've got in this container here and this hot plate, <laughs> we've got uh, some good you can load up on your plate and some evil. No, evil isn't picking the wrong food. Evil is taking your food from the buffet and like just dumping it all over the floor. The food was not intended for that purpose, and yet the potential exists for things to not be used for their good purpose. This brings disorder and dysfunction. And this is where I find Gregory Ness's work to be especially helpful in particular. The intended goal of humanity is union with God. Through the finite symbols of creation, we get glimpses of the good, and then we get these invitations to celebrate that goodness on a continuing onward journey beyond the finite good to the infinite good. But the misuse of that potentiality, the misuse of Receiving those symbols as invitations, the misuse of our potentiality, which we can use to move towards the good, to be drawn towards the good, the misuse of it to either settle for the glimpses of the good that we find in the finite symbol and worship them as God, you know, that momentary sliver of beauty we experience in a finite created thing, when we experience that, if we name that as our chief end of all of our aims, it perverts that good thing into a tool that we believe can satisfy us, that we believe this is the only, the only thing that can satisfy us. It isn't an accurate picture. That is a dysfunctional picture. So when we elevate the created thing above the creator, it is disordered because it's dysfunctional. It's not the right ordering, and that is evil. Or... If we pervert the good that we see in God's creation into a tool that we believe can elevate ourselves to the very throne of God, these are the sorts of evil misuses of the intended right ordering of God's good world. 
This is the disorder that Gregory calls the retrocession of the soul from the beautiful. All right, so you might ask, why did God allow for that? Why did God allow? This is a lingering question. Even if you're in agreement with me on these points that I am in agreement with others on, you might go, why did God allow for the potentiality of disorder? Well, for Augustine, evil was, quote, that which falls away from essence and tends towards non-existence, end quote. He's in agreement with that. I'm in agreement with Augustine on this point. But defining what evil is still doesn't give us an answer to a question about why a perfectly good and all-powerful God would even allow for any possible movement away from the good. You know, maybe if you, maybe a helpful analogy might be if you've been watching uh, the show WandaVision at all on, on Disney+. Plus. This is not a paid advertisement. I enjoy the show. Um, you know, Wanda, who is uh, a superhero from Marvel Comics known as the Scarlet Witch, she, and here's a spoiler, this is a spoiler, spoiler alert, <laughs> okay? So skip ahead 45 seconds if you don't want anything spoiled. Wanda creates in the town of Westview in uh, Marvel's WandaVision, makes this alternate reality bubble. Now, if you picture that alternate reality bubble, except this is a good one. It's only good. We picture the arena of reality as this kind of like bubble in Westview, right? God makes this. And if we think of evil as a movement away from the center of the town and moving beyond the bubble into non-existence, think of the journey Vision took in episode five, I believe, where he, he's, he's moving beyond the bounds of that reality bubble. Even with that, we ask the question, well, why is this disordered movement away from the, you know, metaphorical WandaVision Westview bubble of the good into the non-existence, the non-existent beyond? Why is that even a possibility? So you got the ontological dualists. You know, they will suggest that there's some kind of force or being metaphysically prior or equal to God's will. You know, that's their explanation, that in a sense, there is something still beyond the will of God, which has forced there to be, in some sense, uh, evil. For process theists, they might say this metaphysically prior or ontologically prior uh, force or being is creativity. So not all process theists, but some process theists see God's will as having to respond to creativity. Thomas J. Ord believes that in a sense you have an internal hierarchy in God in which love is metaphysically prior and superior to will in God. And I can see some of the existential and the emotional appeal to these theodicies because some may feel that this somehow absolves God of the responsibility for the horrific things they may have endured. God couldn't do it. There was something beyond God, something, you know, God can't, right? That's the, that's the title of, of, of Tom, Tom's book, and I understand why it's appealing. The cost for me, though, in believing that kind of theodicy is too great, the reason why it's too great is it reduces God to being just another agent in the creation arena whose will is subject to wills beyond his own. 
If that is the case, then we can have little certainty that the will that holds the creation arena all together, the will that holds all things together in this creation at this very moment, will be able to continue to hold it in the next. If there is something beyond the will of God, we can have little certainty about anything. Could we wake up tomorrow and all of the laws of physics be usurped by utter chaos and absurdity? If something else is metaphysically prior or superior to God's will, then that outcome is entirely possible, dare I'd say even likely, but we look around the world and we see that that's not the case. We can have pretty strong certainty when we wake up tomorrow, the laws of physics are not going to be usurped by utter chaos and absurdity. This isn't like the bubble in WandaVision's um, alternate reality where things don't behave as they should. And there may even be, as we discover towards the end of the series, there are forces acting um, in a way that, hey, you know, this isn't actually, maybe this isn't entirely Wanda's bubble, alternate reality bubble at all. So if we have that, I, I just think the cost is too much. I can see why it's appealing. I don't think it's biblically warranted, and I think it's existentially, it isn't satisfying. This is why I find myself in a more historic, classical theism, one that is, affirms a moderate cosmic dualism, one that allows there for there to be a creator-creation distinction, one that I believe, if there is a creator-creation distinction, I would be in agreement with people like Aquinas and Augustine on this point that God has to allow, if there is a distinction, is logically necessary for creation to have potentiality. This creation has the potentiality to move away from the good. Otherwise, if it didn't, there would be only the good. And God cannot make God. What God has to do logically in creating a creation with a distinct difference, an essential difference from himself, is a creation with potentiality. What we can trust as we understand this logical and biblical necessity of God as the highest good is that even in God's willful creation of reality with the potentiality for movement away from the good, God's infinite intelligence brought into being the best of all possible worlds. On this point, I'm in agreement with Aquinas, with Luis de Molina, the founder of Molinism, and, and Gottfried Leibniz. Now, I know that this language of best of all possible worlds isn't without its theological dissenters. I get it. I was probably there once too. But before I give my own nuanced defense of it, along with it, my response to the question of why did God allow for any potential disorder at all, we have to address some of the relevant questions about God's relation to time and the nature of God's knowledge as the transcendent ground of all being. Frankly, I don't have the slightest clue how the metaphysics of time works beyond our existential or phenomenological experience of it. Even at that, I'd be lying if I said that I truly comprehend Einstein's theory of general relativity other than it making for a kind of cool plot device in Christopher Nolan's uh, Interstellar movie. To me, this is a category of knowledge existing in that, that Kantian noumenal plane, right? The plane that just 
might simply be beyond the bounds of rational deduction or empirical observation. The classical theists, the process theists, they, they can have their speculative debates about the nature of God's relationship to time and process, but no matter what philosophical camp you land in, I think there are these two biblical affirmations we have to hold to and subordinate our philosophical speculations about time and God's relation to time under. First, time cannot be a metaphysical power above and beyond God. Otherwise, it would be God, right? Secondly, God is what the scriptures reveal as a living God with real relationship to time-bound creatures. He not only constructs and sustains the creation arena of contingent reality, but he also acts in the creation arena as an agent. He's not limited to being an agent among many agents, but he does act in the creation arena as an agent as well. These are affirmations that I see as part of the historic Christian affirmation that is core, core to making sense of reality. It's core to addressing the problem of evil. These are the affirmations that God is both transcendent and imminent. Now, the classical theist might struggle to find ways of genuinely affirming the imminence of God acting in real relation to time-bound creatures. There's really good critiques from the process theists about this. But the process theists have their own struggle. They have, a, in their struggle, they have a difficult time truly affirming the transcendence of God and not just merely conceiving of him as an agent acting in a pre-existing arena. By which I, again, even back in our episode on process theism, I asked, pre-existing by who or what other will? Is it creativity? Is it love? That's the case. Those are God. <laughs> Categorically. That is, if that is what's metaphysically necessary, that is what is God. So then you're left with this God sort of demiurge God, uh, God relationship, right? Now, I've argued this before over and over again, right? God, by definition, is that which is necessary for there to be anything at all. And therefore, by definition, God must be transcendent. If God is transcendent and the ground of all being, then there can be no limitations on what is known to God. Now, the open theist may agree with this, but prefer to say that the kind of reality that God structured contains possibilities that have unknowable outcomes until a moral agent uses their free will, aka their potentiality, to choose to make that potentiality an actuality. I get it. And I've said this before, I used to be a card-carrying open theist, and I still believe there's plenty of biblical warrant for taking that view seriously. I don't, I don't dismiss it. I think, and I've told this to um, Dan Kent before, um, my friend Dan Kent, who co-hosts the Renew podcast with Greg Boyd, I told him, you know, we all existentially live like open theists. But ultimately, I'm not convinced anymore. For reasons I brought up with Greg on two different occasions, even if this was the way God somehow structured reality, that he built into it, con you know, contingent possibilities that don't become things to be known until a moral agent chooses them and makes them an actuality. I, I just don't see how it stands. 
the nature of God's transcendent being, which has not only created every molecule in the universe, but presently upholds and sustains their very existence. If God is transcendent and holds all things together, it means that the position of every molecule in the universe, every neuron firing in your brain is presently known to God. And if that location of everything is presently known to God, and God has no limitations to his cognitive computing powers, then even if he so chose to build a, a real ontological possibility into the structure of the creation arena, he would and should be able to predict every single molecule's trajectory and every single neural connection that'll happen in the next moment, however we define a moment to be, right? Not only that, but he'd be able to predict with complete certainty the outcome of every single moment that would follow. If not, then God's got a computational limitation. If he can't do that, then he's not transcendent. If he can't figure it out, then he has limitations. Limitations that have been imposed on him by what? That's the question. Is it a computational limitation? Is it a cognitive limitation? If God is that cognitively limited and, you know, we have thought experiments like Pierre Laplace's, uh, Laplace's demon, and you can Google that if you want to grapple with this argument a bit more. If we could conceive of, you know, potentially getting to the point where artificial intelligence could predict outcomes of things on a level that comes close to this, we have to be able to conceive of God having the computational and cognitive ability, even if we were to acknowledge that there are open possibilities in reality, that God's going to predict them with 100% certainty. So I don't know how foreknowledge is avoidable. I bring all of this up as a way of affirming my agreement with Aquinas, Molina, Leibniz, and others who saw that a belief in this reality being the best possible reality for God to have made was unavoidable. Fully comprehending that this kind of creation arena filled with agents who possess potentiality would lead to movements away from the good, God still brought this reality to be. The weight of the goodness, truth, and beauty in the sum total of all creation in every moment and in the glory to come is so far beyond even the worst conceivable instances of suffering. And you might go, Paul, how could you know that? How could we ever assess the sum total of goodness or evil in the universe and come to some sort of like objective conclusion on which there is more of in any given moment? Is there more in the present moment evil or is there more goodness? We couldn't. The task is humanly impossible. If the task is impossible, then it sure seems hard to say confidently, well then, on the flip side, I know God could have brought about a better world than this. We can't say that. We have to trust in the nature and character of God then that this is the best possible world. If it isn't, then God isn't good. Now, that doesn't mean every moment this was a misconception of Leibniz's argument. This doesn't mean that everything that's happening in this moment, anywhere in all of creation, is in and of itself good. But the sum total of all the goodness outweighs it. And we can kind of play with Molina's theory a bit. And even if we were to assume for a moment, somehow logically or 
you know, even temporarily, temporarily prior to the, in the beginning, God pulls a sort of Dr. Strange in the Avengers Affinity War movie. And let's say, you know, he runs simulations on the 14 trillion, 14 billion, 605 possible outcomes, whatever Dr. Strange says there is for the possible ending of the Avengers story. Let's say God does that for all the possible outcomes for the story of creation, factoring the innumerable ways every human and angelic agent could use the potentiality of their will. Which one would God decide to actualize? If it's not the best story, then we're not speaking of the Christian God. All these analogies about the noumenal, they are insufficient, ultimately. Comparing God to a magic Marvel superhero, right? (laughs) Insufficient. Speaking about God running mental simulations or making computations, insufficient. I get it. It's obviously language. It doesn't capture what the infinite ground of all being is. However, even these limited analogies should cause us to pause and consider what's possible for the infinite God. If God's wisdom is undoubtedly beyond Dr. Strange's time stone magic trick, and God's goodness is the source of all virtues that our heroes, both real and fictitious, participate even in part in, then the world that God brought to be must be the best possible world. Does this mean that the world we've been fated to just has to be this way in this present moment? Doesn't something, acknowledging something like this, does, doesn't this ultimately absolve humans of responsibility for their moral choices? Doesn't God's foreknowledge functionally mean God's foreordaining? Well, Thomas Aquinas, the foremost scholastic classical theologian in history, he didn't think so. Because God built potentiality into the creation arena, we possess the moral capacity to use our will to move away from the good or toward, to move toward the good in an ongoing development of caritas. To Aquinas, caritas was the highest virtue, a manifestation of the selfless love of God brought about by the indwelling empowerment of the Spirit. God is the primary cause of all things as ultimate reality, the transcendent ground of all being, and the willful sustainer of every moment in the creation arena. But he is not the acting agent or secondary cause of all things in the creation arena. Some, some, some of you hearing that, you're going to inevitably ask the question, well, how can this be? How can this be if he can perfectly foreknow or predict how all things will come to be? And this is where I confess a degree of mystery between these core affirmations of God's transcendent sovereignty and human moral responsibility. And, and this was the thing that made me for a time be attracted to the open view. Uh, Greg Boyd and Clark Pinnock. I, I, I get it because they weren't fine with that mystery. But the thing that I've come across in doing this over the past year and a half and of wrestling with this for decades is that you are inevitably going to bump up into mystery. You are not going to see it all. It's in this noumenal, Kant was right, there are things beyond our, our, our rational, and Schleiermacher was even right about this, there are things beyond, beyond us. They're beyond the, the empirical. They're beyond the rational. 
They're beyond figuring out there is some degree of mystery. We're going to land here everywhere. And if you're like, well, maybe I don't want to be a Christian. Good luck. There's mystery everywhere else. Buddhism. You don't think there's mystery in Buddhism? Behind it all is nothing, right? What about just nihilism? Good luck with that. (laughs) You're going to bump into it everywhere. So what mystery will you accept that still makes the most cohesive and coherent story. I get it. Like, the open theists were right to say that the biblical narrative becomes nonsensical if human moral responsibility is just illusory. Aquinas knew this to be true, too. Some like Luther, Calvin, and certainly the Jansenists, I I think they went too far in imposing some of the possible implications of God's transcendence on the biblical revelation and and imposing it on the biblical revelation of human moral responsibility specifically. And some may see appeals to mystery like this as, well, you're just turning a blind eye away from a logical consistency, or some might see it as the byproduct of intellectual slothfulness. But as we've seen throughout this series, all theodicies eventually get to this point. And if Kant was right, and I kind of think he is about this, We have epistemological limitations as humans. If that's true, then mystery is an inevitable feature of the human experience. God is transcendent. God is imminent. We're responsible for our actions. I cannot throw out any of these three affirmations. Even in all of these lingering questions that still remain, why, we ask, Why bring about a creation, God? Why bring about a creation at all if the capacity for so much evil is even a possibility at all? Here's where the work of someone who is not known as a theologian, but was instead a literary master of fiction and fantasy, may yield one of the most helpful theodicies. J.R.R. Tolkien was a 20th century English writer and professor, best known for creating the fantasy works of The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. But it's in Tolkien's lesser known, posthumously published work, The Silmarillion, that Tolkien most explicitly draws upon his Catholic theology to compose a cosmological backstory for Middle-earth. Though there is no explicit backstory for an event many would call the fall of Satan in the biblical literature. Tolkien's fictional creation myth has clear points of connection to long-held theories among Christians about the fall of Satan. Most notably, we could think of those of John Milton's Paradise Lost. Though fictitious, I think the symbolic mythology of Tolkien's creation myth is filled with rich theological truths and even a profound defense for God's designing of creation with the potentiality for disordered evil. In this opening creation myth that Tolkien calls the Aina Lindele, Eru Ilvatar, aka God, as his first act of creation brings about the Ainur, the spiritual moral agents of Tolkien's universe. God teaches these angelic spirits music so that they would all participate in God's great symphony. Each are given the potentiality of voicing their own notes in the song of creation, but the music they create only finds its right ordering by playing and singing in harmony with God's beautiful symphony. 
They can act truly as sub-creators, an important idea in Tolkien's work, improvising the notes and truly expressing the fire that God put within them into song as long as the music they make is in harmony with the theme God as composer has instructed them to play within. For those of you who are musicians and can kind of understand how improvisation can still fit within a a, a unified theme that can still be in harmony with the rest of the music, you you could maybe conceive of this creation song as almost like a a jazz or blues jam session where experienced musicians, they they know how to play together to make one cohesive song, even though the, the individual notes are not rigidly prescribed to any of them. As a guitarist, I know that if I sit in on a blues jam, all I really need to know is the key that we're playing the song in, the musical key, and I can, I can jump in and contribute. Well, one of these angelic-like spirits named Melkor is the first Ainur to use his potentiality to make music that is not in harmony with creation's song. If we Think of this like an A minor blues shuffle. Melkor starts shredding in E flat and keeps changing time signatures like it's a Mars Volta prog rock song. This Satan-like Melkor attempts to bring disorder into the song. Why? Well, we don't really know. Just as we have no real idea what tempted the original tempter in our true story of creation. Certainly, there is vanity at play in Melkor's discordant song. He's a musical virtuoso, and like many musical virtuosos, he wants to break free from the band. He wants to do a solo project. You know? he, and he sees that as the band, you know, the symphony of the angelic song, the Ainur, he sees it as actually holding him back. Before long, the other Ainur, there's other Ainur who break away from the great symphony of creation, and then they, they join with Melkor in trying to make their own song. But as this happens, it becomes apparent that this new discordant song is far less beautiful. It's, it's kind of like the guitar player who just won't stop soloing, even though he knows all of his scales, right? Even though he can shred... Melkor and the other rebelling angelic Ainur, they're using their potentiality to make a much less beautiful song. But this is where, to me, the brilliance of Tolkien's creation myth comes in. To me, it is one of the great pictures of how God will actually move in the song of creation, how God is actually, this is the best possible song, and how God will creatively work with the potentiality that he has given moral agents to somehow compose in the end a far more beautiful song. So Tolkien writes, Tolkien writes as, as the, the song of creation moves into its third movement or theme, he writes this, quote, Then Iluvatar rose, and the Ainur perceived that his countenance was stern, and he lifted up his right hand, and behold, A third theme grew amid the confusion, and it was unlike the others. For it seemed at first soft and sweet, a mere rippling of gentle sounds and delicate melodies. But it could not be quenched, and it took to itself power and profundity. And it seemed at last there were two musics progressing at one time before the seat of Iluvatar, and they were 
utterly at variance. The one was deep and wide and beautiful, but slow and blended with an immeasurable sorrow from which its beauty chiefly came. The other had now achieved a unity of its own, but it was loud and vain and endlessly repeated, and it had little harmony, but rather a clamorous unison as of many trumpets braying upon a few notes, and it essayed to drown the other music by the violence of its voice. But it seemed that its most triumphant notes were taken by the other and woven into its own solemn pattern. In the midst of this strife, whereat the halls of Iluvatar shook and a tremor ran out into the silences yet unmoved, Iluvatar rose a third time and his face was terrible to behold. Then he raised up both his hands and in one chord, deeper than the abyss, higher than the firmament, piercing as the light of the eye of Iluvatar, the music ceased. Then Iluvatar spoke and he said, Mighty are the Ainur and mightiest among them is Melkor, but that he may know, and all the Ainur, that I am Iluvatar, those things that ye have sung, I will show them forth, that ye may see what ye have done, and thou, Melkor, shalt see that no theme may be played that hath not its uttermost source in me, nor can any alter the music in my despite. For he that attempted this shall prove but mine instrument in the devising of things more wonderful, which he himself hath not imagined. And thou, Melkor, wilt discover all the secret thoughts of thy mind, and wilt perceive that they are but a part of the whole and tributary to its glory." End quote. The song of creation is deep and wide and beautiful, slow and blended with an immeasurable sorrow. This is the cruciform nature of reality in this age. The sorrow cannot be simply extracted from the song. No, the beauty and the sorrow are inextricably linked. This does not mean that this song is not beautiful or good because it's filled with sorrowful melodies instead of just rhythms of joy. This song of creation is good and beautiful, and God in his love for all that he has made and in his very nature as the source of all beauty will not allow the discordant song to ruin the symphony. In fact, he is even going to weave the notes that do not feel like they belong in the song of creation into the song in such a way that in the final resolve of the song's end, we will perceive that all of the attempts to disorder the song have actually been redemptively incorporated into the perfect symphony with not a single note in all of history wasted. We hear in Tolkien's symbolic mythology echoes of Paul's promise to the church at Rome that, quote, we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him who have been called according to his purposes, end quote. God is weaving together every single note in the song of creation into a final beautiful and good composition. This doesn't mean that all things are presently good or beautiful or true, but it does mean that those who are pursuing the purposes of God in creation 
will have even the darkest instance of evil that they've experienced redemptively incorporated into the final harmonious and beautiful song. Thanks for listening to today's episode. I'm sure many of you have questions, you have points of disagreement, you have observations. Maybe there's things that have even been helpful and I'd love to hear all of them. You can reach out to me on Patreon. That's probably the best place. You can participate in the group forum discussion for this episode. It comes out with each episode. Um, People, other listeners to this program share their thoughts and perspectives. We have some dialogue on the questions you might have. But as you submit your questions to me there, um, I'm also going to put some of the best questions together for a bonus Q&A episode. So you can get involved. You'll find a link in the description to this podcast to find out more about the Deep Talks Patreon community. We'll also have towards the end of the month a Patreon for a group Zoom hangout. So we'll, we'll get people who are in the Theology 201 group together or um, those that are in that group are hired together for a Zoom call, and uh, it'll be fun. We had our first one last month, and it was a really, really good time together. I'm looking forward to doing more of those. I'm also working, you know, don't, I'm not making any promises here. I'm, I'm working on actually putting together this Problem of Evil series into a book format. So those of you that pray, you could be saying a prayer for me about that. Currently exploring what the best avenues are for releasing that. I'm hopeful that maybe this entire series, if put together in that format, might be a tool or resource you could share with someone else who's going through these sorts of questions. And uh, we'll see. We'll see where that goes. I want to give special thanks to those who are supporting at the Theology 201 uh, level or higher. I can't do this podcast without you guys. I'm so glad that I can continue to do this without advertisements. I don't want to do advertisements. And uh, this takes time and energy and resources to put these together. And um, so I can't do it without people like Tim K, Taylor S, Stephen M, Sean C, Sarah R, Sam P, Sam and Nicole, Rob S, Paul R, Paul S, Mike, Michael Peterson, Michael uh, Hernstein, Michael H, Luke H, Lola, Justin, Josie, Johnny, John, Michael, Hannah, Eli, Carolyn, BJ, Anders, Jesse, and Clint. Thank you all for your generous support. Again, if you guys want to get involved and become a supporter like one of these fine people, there's a bunch of other additional bonus perks and and things that might be of additional benefit to you. So you can find out more about that in the link below. You can also reach out to me on Twitter at Paul Anleitner. And my one final request is that you would leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps other people find it. Apple Podcasts is still the number one platform people are going to to discover and listen to subscribe to podcasts. So even if you don't listen on that format, if you wouldn't mind leaving some sort of review, that would really help people figure out if this is something that's worth their time or not. Well, this series has been an absolute blast. It's been hard work, uh, but it's been worthwhile. 
the longest. I don't think I'll ever do one this long <laughs> again, but I do already have some things brewing for the next possible series. We've got some great guests lined up, including Dr. John Walton of Wheaton. I can't wait to sit down and talk with him. You guys are really going to enjoy and appreciate and, you know, maybe even have some objections. <laughs> The things that come up in that conversation, it's all good. I can't wait to hear from all of you. Again, reach out to me either on Patreon or on Twitter at Paul Amleitner. And I look forward to talking to you all again. Until next time, we'll talk again soon.